Good morning, folks. Welcome to Cornerstone. If you're here for the first time, big welcome. My name's Steve. I'm one of the leaders here. Can I just say this before we get into our next, um, our next thing? Cornerstone, I'm proud of you, and I want to honor you and give God all the glory. There are amazing statistics. Five years, all those details of serving people who are less fortunate than ourselves. So can I encourage all of us, if we're able to help in any way, that's financially or to support families in ways, you know, going bowling and stuff like that, you know, suffering for Jesus there, aren't we? Be encouraged to do that. But can I just say, I'm sitting there and I'm proud of the church that I am part of. I'm proud of the people that I get to do life with. So I want to thank you, honor you, and also give God all the glory. And for the work that Safer Families are doing, amazing. Keep doing it for the glory of Christ. Thank you. Got your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. And if you are here for the first time, we're going through this book of Nehemiah. And the book of Nehemiah is uh, about a, a, a man and about God's people. And this man wasn't born in Jerusalem. He was actually born in exile. God's people had been put under judgment. And they were in exile. Now, over a period of time, God was true to his promises, and God's people moved back on three, with three sort of, sort of movements, went back to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah was a guy working in the palace in, in Susa, in the, in the Persian Empire, and heard about the trouble and strife of God's people because the walls of the city were broken down. And through prayer, through a number of different events, Nehemiah ends up going back to Jerusalem envisions the people regarding the importance of building the wall, gathers them all, and they start building. And last week, Paul told us that as we read through Nehemiah 4, that actually as they were beginning to build the walls, those who did not want the walls to be built started to mock. Started to mock people. Started to mock the standard of work that was being done. And that mockery turned to serious opposition where there was threat of violence and threat of war. So Nehemiah strategically leads God's people to enable them to to build the wall while simultaneously being ready for war. They were there with a trowel in one hand, they had a sword in the other hand, ready to build up the walls around God's people, but also ready to fight against opposition. And we come to see, folks, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but our battle is against powers and principalities. Our battle is against the evil one and all his schemes to try and destroy us from being part of seeing the kingdom of God built up. So we live our lives with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other, ready to fight. But our sword is the word of God, the sword of the Spirit that enables us to fight sin, that enables us to fight opposition for his glory. And today we come to a part of the story where we will see that the threats to the stability of God's community are threats that are coming from within as well as outside. Let's read Nehemiah 5 together. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's taxes on our fields and on our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. 
And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and have our vineyards. I, Nehemiah, was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words, and I took counsel with myself and brought charges against the nobles and the officials and said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemy? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also took out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen. And praise the Lord and the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from that time, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah. From the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily rations 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of the Lord. I also persevered in the work of the war, and we acquired, we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six sheep, and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Let's pray. Father, help us, we ask, by your spirit, to see the wonders and the treasures within your word. And we ask that your spirit would do a work amongst us for your glory's sake. Amen. Folks, throughout all of redemptive history, throughout all of history, God's people, when God's people do God's work in God's way, will always experience opposition and threats. That's what you read as you read through the Bible. And as you read through history, both the obvious threats that come from outside, and as we see within this passage, the less obvious threats that come from within the community of God's people. See here, the wall was being built, but the community was falling apart. And we see as a direct impact of the collective efforts of all the people, of all of God's people in the building of the walls, there comes, number one, a great cry, a great outcry of complaint comes to Nehemiah. The outcry was that there was not enough food, verse 2. 
Many people had traveled to the city to help the rebuilding of the walls. And in verse 8, Nehemiah even says, look, we've even brought more people back from exile with us. And as a result of all these people living in the city, verse 2, there was enough, not enough food to the point that people were close to death. See that verse 2? We need grain so we can eat and not die, so that we can stay alive. But folks, the, the outcry wasn't primarily about the lack of food. But rather the complaint was against, it says they're, they're Jewish brothers. And it was a complaint that was coming from everybody. Men and women. Folks, as you look through the Bible, when the complaint comes from the women, you've got to listen. Because often as you lead through, it's often, it's often in a patriarchal system that the, the women often would, would suffer, once of a better phrase, would walk through it. But once they start to cry, there's a seriousness that is going to affect all of God's people. That's why I think Nehemiah writes that, that there is a seriousness that is occurring in the midst, I guess, of the joy of seeing the walls built, that is this difficult issue that is coming, and the cry comes from every part of the community. See, the complaint was against the brothers within the community, namely the nobles, the leaders, the nobles and the leaders, because they were taking advantage of their own people. See, granted, Nehemiah, in chapter 4, verse 22, he'd instructed everybody, hadn't he, when they were building the walls, when there was the threat of opposition, he says to them all, nobody can go home till the walls are finished. So everybody that come in to help were there and remain. So granted, that would have affected things. It would affect farming. It would have affect, affected people able to do farming and maybe bring in the harvest. But in chapter 6, verse 15, we are told there that the building of the walls from beginning to completion only took 52 days to build. So I'm no farmer, but I know things take a lot longer to grow and to harvest than 52 days. Agreed? Agreed? Like there's no country people in here at all. All the city people are like, I haven't got a clue. I have not got a clue. You know, I just go to Tesco's and harvest what I want. <laughs> I haven't got a clue, but it, it, it's a long process. So actually, what was occurring here was something that had been going on for a long, long time. See, folks, what we've got to see is as God's people stepped into the light of obedience, into the light of building the wall, the light revealed other areas of threat that needed to be addressed. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the light of the world. And the light of the world comes in and darkness cannot overcome it. If you sit in a dark room and you light a match, even the smallest of the light fills the room to some extent. See, as we step into the obedience of the light of the gospel, it reveals other areas of threat in us that need to be addressed. See, the walls here were the visible issues, but underneath, at the heart of the community, there was an issue that had been eating them up from inside out, and now it was being revealed. And these are the issues. Verse 3, because of the lack of food, people were having to remortgage their homes and their land just to get grain. Verse 4, in order to pay the heavy taxes of the king that was given back to the nobles and the leaders of the area, they were borrowing money against their fields and against their vineyards to pay these things. And it got so bad, verse 5, they struggled so much to pay back what they were owing. They even had to sell their kids into slavery, into servanthood to pay that back. 
And they say this, we can't do anything about this situation. That's what they say. Because other people have our fields and other people have our vineyards. We don't even have them to remortgage again to pay what we owe. Folks, please note that the complaint is against their own people because it's their own people who are taking advantage of this vulnerable situation. It's their own people who are happy to see those who are vulnerable sell their children into servanthood, verse 5, to pay back debts, to make sure that they get their money back. That's why it says in verse 5, now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as of their children, yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and have our vineyards. These are our children. These are our children together. But they're forcing us to sell our children to each other in order to pay back, and there's nothing we can do about it. Now, folks, I want you to know this, that it wasn't contrary to God's law to lend money. All right. The lending of money was not against God's law. It wasn't against God's law to take items as, as collateral for loans. Well, I'll, 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 I'll have this till you pay me back and then you can have it again. It wasn't against God's, God's law to do that. And it wasn't unlawful for people to go into service to pay off a debt. If they did that, they had to be treated as family and they had to be released after seven years, even if the debt had not been paid. However, what was happening here was that interest was being added. And those who were going into service to pay the debt were not being treated well. They were being treated as those who were in permanent slavery, which was contrary to God's law. The slavery that we think of straight away when we see that word. If you want to know more about that, we did a sermon on that in Exodus 22 a number of months ago. You can find that online. But this is what God's law says. If you look in Leviticus 25, it'll be on the screen. It says this, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though you were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. And in Deuteronomy 15, 7 and 9, it says, If among you one of your brothers shall become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his needs, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, The seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye looks grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cries to the Lord against you, you will be guilty of sin. And we see in this moment that this is exactly what the nobles were doing to their own people, verse 7. They were exploiting, they were oppressing their own people for their own gain. Folks, a couple of things to consider here. The greatest threat to the community of God is the threat from within. It's the threat from within. See here, yes, there's unity of the building of the walls. There's an exterior. There's an external thing that everybody can see. But for years, there was a lack of unity and love amongst God's people. I sadly, over the last 12 months, have had to sit with many a pastor and many a church leadership 
Many have moved away for their jobs. A number of them have lost their jobs because of disunity and because of issues that have occurred within the church. Internal threat. Internal threats. Internal gossip. Internal issues. We are called to love the people who we sit next to and do life with. See, when the Bible says we fight against powers and principalities, what the devil does, it's not that he comes in like a big red costume. It's not like there's darkness in our homes. No, what he does, he puts a lie in your heart and a lie in your mind, and you believe that, and it causes you to distort the truth of God's word, and it also causes that distorts how you view other people, and it's that that chips away at God's community. It's not as obvious, but it's there. It's there. We have to be aware of that. But also, we have to be aware that when we step into the light of obedience, God's word and his spirit will reveal within us what God wants to deal with, both individually and also collectively. He wants us to see and put to death what is evil within us and what is a threat to us and also a threat to those within the church. Colossians 3 tells us this, if then you've been raised with Christ, if you are in him and united to him and, and you are in the throne room because he who, in whom you are united to, you are there with him, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So set your minds on the things that are above, not on things in the earth, because you've died to that, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Then it says this, so therefore, put to death what is earthly within you. Fight what is earthly within you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion. Evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of our Creator. Folks, when we step into the truth of the gospel, the gospel will reveal the truth of our broken hearts, but God graciously, in and through his word, says, look, put that to death, put that to death. I will work with you, I will walk with you. For those of us who have been Christians more than five minutes, you suddenly become aware of sin that you were not aware of before. Agreed? Yeah, agreed, of course. Oh my word, I, I used to do this. Or the things that you sort of lavished in that were brokenness and sinfulness, you now want to run from. See, what was happening as they walked into the obedience of building the wall, it revealed other brokenness within, and that had to be dealt with. Otherwise, God's people would have fallen apart. Let's be aware of that, folks. Let's be aware of that, but see that those of us who are in Christ are raised with him, seated with him. So therefore, we can build with a trowel and have a sword at our side through the word of God and his spirit to put all this to death so that we together as his people flourish. Amen? Amen. There was a great cry of the people, and it revealed sin. And in response, we see Nehemiah give a rebuke and a call to repentance. Number two, rebuke and repentance, verses 6 to 11. We see a rebuke. What is Nehemiah's reaction? Verse 6, he is angry. He's fuming. He's angry. 
And his anger, folks, is a measure of his concern and love for the people, isn't it? It's a measure. This is something that we need to understand. Anger towards oppression, abuse, brokenness, sin is not wrong. It's not wrong. What is wrong is when our reaction to the emotion of anger is not controlled, and it's wrong when it's destructive rather than constructive. In his right response of anger towards this sin, which is clearly rife amongst God's people, Nehemiah doesn't kick off. He doesn't write anyone off. He, verse 7, takes counsel with himself. Do you see that? He takes counsel with himself. He has a word with himself. He took a moment. He gave serious thought to the issue before responding. Folks, when we are faced with sin, when we're faced with injustice, when we're faced with oppression, abuse, heresy, blasphemy, it is right to be angry, but it's not right to sin. It's not right for us to say, well, look what's happened. That's just the way I am. That's how I respond. Ephesians 4 tells us, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And we also see as you read through the Gospels that the Lord Jesus Christ got angry. He was angry. Lord Jesus, who was fully God and fully man and knew the whole range of, and knows the whole range of human emotion, he got angry. And he was angry at the hardness of heart of the leaders, the Pharisees of God's people during his earthly ministry. See, when the Pharisees were trying to catch Jesus out, they watched as Jesus engaged with a man who had a withered hand. Now, it happened to be the Sabbath, and they happened to be in the synagogue. And at that time, Jesus was aware of all this going on, and he turns to, to, to the Pharisees, and they, he says to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? And their response, silence. Silence. They refused to answer. And Mark says in Mark 3, 5, he says that Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched out his hand, and his hand was restored in a synagogue and on the Sabbath. See, folks, in this story, Nehemiah is angry, but his anger is controlled. Therefore, his response, verses 7 and 8, is constructive just like Jesus. And his response brings changes. See, verse 7, it says this, I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest, each one from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. That means he got lots of people and he, he, he said this in front of them. We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. You are being harsh pawnbrokers, he says. You're being the cash converters that everybody will avoid. And you're putting our people who have been freed from slavery back into slavery. And what's the response, verse 8, of this rebuke of the nobles and the officials? Silence. They had no words. 
the truth exposed the sin. Verse 9, there was no justification. There was no explanation. There was no mitigating circumstances. There was no, well, you know, that's, I had a problem when I was a kid, so therefore that's what it is. No. What Nehemiah says is this. What you are doing is not good. What you are doing is not good. Folks, sometimes we've just got to own the sin. In fact, not sometimes, always we have to own the sin. There is no mitigating circumstances. There is no from my perspective. There is no explanation. When we sin, we sin. And sometimes, all of the time, we just own it. See, Nehemiah goes on to say, it's not good, one, because you're oppressing your people, but also, and here we see in Nehemiah a appeal to a higher motive. He says, ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? It's not good. It's not good because you're not walking in fear of God. Yes, you're oppressing people. See, the rebuke from Nehemiah comes from the reality that their sin is an offense to their God and brings his name into disrepute. Do you see that? He says, what you're doing is not right. One, because you're oppressing people, but two, ought you not be walking in the fear of God? It's like Nehemiah is saying, we've, we've been the taunt of, of our enemies because we have not walked in the fear of our God. Not any God, but our God. The God who rescued us from Egypt. The God who made us his treasured possession. The God who was patient and gracious with us. The God who even when we disobeyed him to the point of judgment, he graciously kept his promise and brought us out of exile. Our God who has given us favor amongst those who are not his so we can even build the walls that we are building. Our God. Don't you not walk in fear of our God? Folks, when we sin... Yes, we are sinning against people, but we are fiercely sinning against our God. Our God. Our God who created us in His image. Our God who loved us so much, who sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. When we sin, we sin against Him. Any act of oppression towards anyone else. Any word said in gossip about anyone else, any disregard of anyone else, any jealousy of anyone else, any self-satisfaction that we have as a result of the degrading of anyone else, any racism, any sexism, any hate, any placing interest on people in our hearts is first and foremost a sin against God, our God who created every single person in his image. Folks, when we sin, it's because we are not walking in fear of our God who loves us so much. Well, folks, that little bit that I said there, when we exact interest in our hearts, see, we might read a passage like this and think, well, I've not lent money to anybody. And if I've lent money to somebody, I've not asked for interest. You know what I mean? I've not done that. But how many times have all of us given ourselves to serve other people and not receive the affirmation that we think that we should get, or the thanks from them, and it does something in our hearts. We're exact in interest. We're exact in interest. 
That is the battle for all of us in every way. Every morning, we do a family devotions. Sean takes the girls because they're older. I take the boys. And before everyone thinks, oh, yeah, the past there, our devotions are just as you do not, would not imagine. I know you're all expecting that it's perfect. Bible's open. They're quoting Scripture. In fact, we don't need Bibles because all my kids know Scripture. I know that's what you think. I'm telling you it's this. Sitting there, falling asleep in their Rice Krispies, not interested, following a passage in the wrong book, even though I'm reading something else. Okay, that's what it is. <laughs> Anything to pray for, nothing, everything's fine. That's what it's like, isn't it, Elijah? Yeah, it is, it is. <laughs> so we try and read a little bit. We're reading through Mark's gospel, me and the lads. And then I pray with them, and I end every prayer like this. Father, help us to love you and love people well today. Father, help us love you and love people well today. Why do I pray this, folks? Firstly, because we need to know the love of our God. That's what we need to know first. And when we know his love, we respond in love to him. And it's in and from that love that we love others like he loves us. That's why I pray that. Because in and of myself, I can't love the Lord, my God, with all my heart, soul, and mind. I just can't. So my prayer as I pray for my boys and I pray for my family and I pray for you that we love God and love people well is that we would know the love of God because it's in and from the love of God that we're able to love people like he loves us. We can't do it on our own strength. See, I can't love anyone without his love because the temptation to use people for my own gain and glory and my own interest is too strong. And folks, it's the same for you. It's the same for us all. So let us recognize that when we sin, we sin against God. So let's ask him to reveal to us more in the face of Jesus Christ, his love, so we can love others like he loves us. So we put to death the things that are busting us up, both individually and collectively. And folks, any rebuke of sin, because it's right to rebuke sin in a loving way, any rebuke of sin is first and foremost a theological and gospel issue. If our response to sin against us is oh, straight in, it's often because we feel hurt. When actually any rebuke of sin is first theological, it's about God and the truth of his word, the gospel. So when we sin, it's because we are not walking in the fear of God. So any rebuke needs to reveal sin from a position of knowing and loving God with the intention of showing that the exposing light of God is gracious, merciful, and restorative. And restorative. And folks, that grace and that mercy shines and calls us, even in the midst of the worst sin, and calls us to repentance, to turn back to him. And this is, that's what happens next. He rebukes, but then there's a call to repentance, verses 10 to 13. And their repentance, their turning back to God, led to a change, and they gave everything back. You see that? It led to a change. They gave everything back. They stopped their oppression. And verse 12, the debts were wiped clean. And what did they say? We will restore these and require nothing from them. It's like, in one sense, that it's been revealed. And there's a relief in the fact that it's been revealed. And it's like, we want to just give it back. We want to give it back. There's so much more joy in walking with our brothers and sisters than abusing and oppressing them. There's so much joy in knowing that God graciously calls us even though he knows everything about us. 
And Nehemiah makes them make an oath, a promise, verse 12. He gets the high priest. I want you to make this promise before him. To address the seriousness of what was going on. And then in verse 10, he makes a symbolic action. He gets his cloak and he unfolds the end. It's like unfolding my, you know, my turn up there because I've got little legs. I'm going to shake it out. And he does a symbolic sign. And says, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. There's a seriousness to be shaken out. If anyone mistreats God's people again, Nehemiah says, in this way, if they break this promise, they will be shaken from and they will be excommunicated from his people. And all the assembly said what? Amen. Let it be so. Let it be so. Folks, the abuse of other people, human beings, is an offense against the God who created them. Whatever that sin is, whether it's exacting interest, whether it's abusive, whether it's gossip, whether it's hating people within our hearts, we need to, it needs to be shaken out of anything in our hearts and anything amongst God's people. Anything. See, here in Nehemiah's day, they heard the cry. They heard the rebuke. They realized the grace of God, and they humbled themselves. In verse 13, they praised God and did what they promised. Amen? They praised God, and they did what they promised. Isn't it wonderful when, you're, when you confess and repent of sin, and you know in Christ that's been wiped clean? As simple as, you know what happens? You can put your head on your pillow. <laughs> There's no softer pillow than a clear conscience. Amen? Told me that in the police. That's what I was told. <laughs> it's true. No softer pillow than a clear conscience, knowing that Jesus has dealt with my brokenness and sin, whatever that may be. And he's removed it as far as the east is from the west. I can praise him because of that. But folks, did you notice in verse 10? Have a look at verse 10. Do you notice? Nehemiah identifies himself with what is happening. He's the leader. He identifies himself with what is happening. He also was lending grain to people. He also was doing this. Now, I believe in his pondering. You know when he had a, had a word with himself? He's come to realize that either he also had been in the wrong, or at least the depth of poverty that he is now aware of calls for the giving of gifts, not loans. It calls for the laying aside of what is owed in order for people to be cared for. Which at the end of this passage, I think, helps us see that it sets the tone, not only for this repentance, but the rest of Nehemiah's leadership. And I see, and I see number three, big vision leadership here. Big vision leadership, verses 14 to 19. See, the book of Nehemiah was clearly written after all these events. Hence the inclusion at this point in verses 14, where Nehemiah tells us how long he reigns as the governor in Jerusalem. But it's also good to see that what Nehemiah shares here shows that the tone and culture of his leadership has been affected by the events of chapter 5. It's been affected. 
He's had a word with himself. He's looked at things. Now, I think this is really important. And think if any of you are leaders in the context of church, gospel community, elders, if any of you are leaders in any format, it is so easy when you lead people, if people are doing something wrong or people aren't doing what you've asked them to do, for you to go, what is it about my people? What is it about our people that don't? When the right response as a leader is, what it is about my leadership that means our people don't? What is it about my leadership, our leadership, that means our people are doing this? It's taking a responsibility in the light of the truth to go, okay, what is it about my leadership? And folks, can I assure you, we have banned amongst elders in our church, why won't our people? We banned that. It's first, what is it about our leadership? What is it about our leadership? And I think this is what Nehemiah is doing. See, as a governor, verse 14, of Judah and Jerusalem, he was entitled to a food allowance. He was entitled to a food allowance. He was given money to buy food. But one of the burdens that the people faced was the paying of taxes. So they were paying high taxes, and those taxes were given to the governor for his food allowance. So Nehemiah refused to place that burden on the people and did not take the food allowance. That's what it tells us. Very unlike the governors who had gone before him, verse 15. This heavy burden, I think, was one of the reasons that got them in this economic crisis in the first place. But Nehemiah didn't take it because, verse 15, he walked and he led in the midst of the fear of the Lord. He laid aside what he was entitled to for the good and protection and flourishing of his people. He was entitled to the food. And it would not have been sinful for him to take it. But he was aware of the burden, so set aside what he was entitled to for the sake of his people. He also continued in the work that God had given him, verse 16. He wasn't distracted by other things like land ownership, which he could have bought, which he had the means to bought, which would not have been wrong for him to bought. No, But no, he's not distracted by those things, but instead remained focused, focused in what God had called him to do. And verse 17, out of his own pocket, every day has 150 people sitting around this table, and he feeds them. Remember, no food allowance. And not only his brothers, those who were Jews, but people from other nations. And look what he prepared, verse 18, at his own expense. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance or the, of the governor because the service was too heavy on his people. Folks, that was seven cows, 42 sheep, 42 birds a week, not to mention the wine at his own cost. When he was entitled to receive an allowance to pay for those things. It was at his cost he paid the cost for the Jews, and he paid the cost of those who were from other nations, Gentiles, so that they could sit at his table. See, a Nehemiah who had a heart for his people's troubles had grasped the bigger picture. He grasped the development of God's kingdom. That's why he stood for the justice of his people. That's why he didn't exact unnecessary taxes. That's why he perse persevered in the work of the war. 
And folks, he invited people from all nations at his cost to his table. Because Israel were not meant to experience the taunts of other nations, but they were meant to be the missionaries to the other nations. The world was, be, was to be blessed through them. People would, 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 would come close and see the beauty of God in the life of his people. That's what the intention was. But they weren't. They were the taunts of the other nations because the way they responded to God and the way that they responded to each other. But Nehemiah got the big vision of God and led out from it. My question is to all of us, would we do the same? Would we do the same? Do we do the same? Would we lay aside preferences? And would we lay aside persevering for personal benefit to persevere for kingdom benefit? If you're a leader in this room, if you're a leader in God's church in any capacity, are we captured by this big vision of God? Are we? Are we willing to say to God, I'm willing to give away my life rather than take for my life for your purpose, your glory, and for the good of your people? That's what Nehemiah does. Are we willing to say that? Are all of us willing to say that? And I think, folks, this heart and this big vision that comes through conviction of what he sees fuels this prayer in verse 19. Remember my good, O God. All that I've done for his people. Remember me, God. Look what I've done for you. <laughs> That's how we could be read. But folks, it's a prayer that is less about saying, look at what I have done for you, God. But rather, please remember me as one who trusts you and serves you in a sacrificial way. It's a prayer that says, God, I want to do things your way. I want to use what you give me for your purpose. So, Lord, please give me more so I can do more for your people. That's a bold prayer, isn't it, folks? That's a bold prayer. Lord, give me more so I can do more for your people. But, folks, can I say this? I believe it's a right prayer. See, if we get the vision of God and use it for his glory and for the good of his people, it's the right prayer. The question is, do we have the track record of Nehemiah? Do we give of what God has given us, not for personal benefit, but for the benefit of his people? Whatever that is. Do we use what God has given us for his gospel vision and purposes, or do we have an entitlement mindset to what we have or the position we hold? See, there are two prayers that I, I want to pray, and I pray that you want to pray. And pray that God will change your heart and give you a gospel vision and ask him to help you use what you have for his glory and for the good of his people. And pray that God will give you more so you can do more for his people. And folks, I can see it in your face, all right? Before anyone tweets, Cornerstone's become a prosperity gospel church. I'm not talking about the prosperity gospel that says that all Christians should be rich and can be rich. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about praying that God will open up the treasure chest of heaven and give you your daily bread and that he also will give you more so you can benefit others. And that is real for us now. 
isn't it? I know, I know many of you are worried about your gas and electricity bills. I know many of you are worrying coming out of your mortgage deals next year. I know many of you are making decisions between do I pay for my, for my gas and electricity or do I pay for food for the children? Do we buy them new shoes this year? What are we going to do at Christmas? Because kids have no concept of what's going on. I know that's the reality. So my prayer is, Lord, meet our needs and then give us enough so we can care for each other. And that we can be a blessing and a benefit to others. That's what I'm talking about, folks. Because given what we have, giving who we are for the glory of God and for the sake of his people and the lost, is not just being like Nehemiah, but it's being like Jesus. Jesus who laid aside what he was entitled to, given that he's the second person of the Trinity given that he is the son of the living God. He laid aside and forsaken all distractions, set his face like a flint and went to the cross and paid the costly price that we owed because of our sin against God and against others. And folks, he paid that price of death and the judgment of God because of sin and rose again, and in rising again, he invites people like you, and people like me, and people from all tribes, nations, that speak all different languages to sit at his table at his cost. Amen? And because the debt has been wiped clean, because our punishment of sin has been taken by him, folks, we can repent and turn back to him. We have our sins forgiven and we can sit at the table, enjoy his presence and enjoy his abundance without guilt, without shame, without imposter syndrome. We can enjoy it as a kid who sits at the table of a loving father on Christmas Day. Amen? With all the blessings, so many blessings, you've got to leave the blessings till after the meal and the king's speech this year. Before you can get back and that's what we have in Christ Jesus. That's what we have together. Folks, the Lord Jesus said when he spoke to his disciples, the rich young ruler came to Jesus. Mark 10, I'll close with this. Mark 10, the rich young ruler came to Jesus. He said, what do I need to do to have eternal life? What do I need to do? He says, you know, keep the commandments. Well, I've kept all the commandments. I've done them all since I was a little boy. And Jesus looked at him and said, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And the young man's face dropped because the exterior was such that everything seemed to be okay, but the interior was eaten and up inside because his hands and his heart were gripped around what he had. It's irrelevant whether he was rich or not, what he had, that he wasn't willing to give that up. Jesus then goes on to say that it's impossible for those who, 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 who have their hands around what they have, it's impossible for them to come into the kingdom of God. And then Peter turns and says, typical Peter, we, we've, we've given up everything for you. Wives, kids, houses, everything. We've given up everything and we're following you all around the wilderness. And he turns to Peter and he says, whoever has given up mother, brother, sister, wife, husband, land, for my sake and the gospel, will have that given back to them 100-fold now, 
now. Not when Jesus returns now. You will have mothers, you will have brothers, you will have homes, you will have families that you have left behind, but you will find mothers, brothers, sisters, family, abundance, pleasure, joy, peace, now a hundredfold compared to anything that you've walked away from. And you'll have that now in the midst of persecution, right into an eternity when all that persecution is gone. Folks, when we sit at the table of the king who has paid the cost, we have a hundredfold now, more than anything that we have given. Let's grasp that, let's enjoy that, and let's lovingly together be a place and a people and a community that loves the glory of God, that loves each other so that we can go and serve in the same way as Jesus has served so that we build each other up for us to be a blessing to one another, to be a blessing to this city, and to be a blessing to the world for the glory of God. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you and praise you. And we ask that by your Spirit, you would show us and reveal to us any grievous way within us and help us by your Spirit to put it to death. I want to thank you so much for the work that has been done by the people of our church to save other people in our community. It's, I'm so proud to be a member of this church, and I thank you for that. But I pray that you would help us to walk in the fear of you so that internal things do not destroy us, so that we can be a blessing one to another and be a blessing to the world. And we pray these things in your precious name. Amen. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, folks, Jesus was betrayed. Let's think about that. He not only died on a cross, but he was betrayed by his best friends. Some of you know what that means. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it and said, this is my body. This is my body that is broken for you. Take, eat in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup saying, this is the, the covenant, a new covenant of my blood. Take, drink, and know the forgiveness of sins. Know what it is to be right with God. Folks, we as Christians are invited to this table as a picture of the table that we will be invited to at the wedding supper of the Lamb where the feast will be grand and great. And we won't need to break bread like this. And we won't need to drink wine like this. Why? Because the very one that we're remembering will be sat right in front of us. Amen? And we'll be enjoying the abundance of who he is. So let's eat. And let's drink. And let us together look across the room. See that we have brothers and sisters. Look, tribes, tongues, nations, different people different difficulties, different and say, Lord, I don't know that person, but if I know that person, I pray for that person, whatever their difficulties are, Lord, if it's right for me to move towards them and to help them, do that. Some of us don't need to pray that because we know that that's what God wants us to do with some people. So as we remember what he has done for us and the cost that he has paid for us, let us step into that, receiving and looking to see that love displayed one to another. Amen? So let's eat and let's drink together. And be thankful. And as we do that, grab it, pray with somebody next to you, maybe move across the room. Don't feel embarrassed by that. If you someone you want to pray with, go and do that. 
anybody wants to wants prayer, I'll be at the front. Luke will be at the front with me and Ben. If anyone wants to pray, there'll be a lady here as well. Um, Mel will be with us as well. If anyone prayer, come to the front. Pray. Don't be embarrassed. Let's do this. The guys will play music in the background till we sing. Let's do this together for the glory of Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's let's eat, drink, and be thankful. Let's just pray.